Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Kurt Parker. It's good to be in the study of God's Word again. And we would invite those who would like to participate in Children's Church through grade 6 to be dismissed at this time. And I will tell you, just as uh, a little bit of a foreshadowing, uh, our topic today will have some mature things in it. So if you have a 6th grader and hasn't participated downstairs, this may be the day that you want to let them try that out. For the rest of you, turn 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you would, as we are continuing in our laying the foundation of our study, beginning of our study through the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians. There won't be anything that we'll talk about that your junior higher and on up shouldn't already know from you and perhaps are already acquainted with uh, because of his or her interaction with the culture. But we're introducing this study today, and of course, uh, uh, one of the things we want to do at the beginning of every book study is really set a foundation upon which to understand the book. Uh, we took a small break in our introduction to be caught up on Eli and Jessica Elliott's journey to the mission field last week so the church could be praying and planning. And the week prior to that, our missions moment went a little bit long, so our teaching time was a little bit truncated. So today we're going to kind of pick up in the middle of that uh, time two weeks ago and, and kind of fill in some gaps in our background study of the book of Corinth. Look with me, if you would, to verse one of chapter one of first corinthians and we're going to read all the way through verse nine go ahead and get that on the uh the cursor on there so i can forward it if you would guys first corinthians chapter one verse one paul called an apostle of jesus christ by the will of god and sosthenes our brother to the church of god which is at corinth to those who've been sanctified in christ jesus saints by calling with all who in every place call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Verse 5. That in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. Verse 6. Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. Verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 8, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Would you bow with me in prayer as we begin our study this morning? Lord, we thank you today, uh, as we always do, for your word, for its clarity and for uh, its uh, how it points to those areas in our life that need to be revealed and then gives us, offers us the replacement parts that need to be put in. And Lord, today particularly, I just pray that um, you will exclude from our memory or even our consideration everything that's said that doesn't align perfectly with your word, things that perhaps are emphasized that shouldn't be uh, by me. And Lord, that you, you might, as Jim read just a few moments ago out of James, uh, grant us wisdom. You don't abrade or hold back or accuse us for not having it, but we'd like to understand your, uh, your word here and its application to our own culture and our own lives for very similar things seem to be in place. And so, Lord, we ask for those things and ask us, I uh, pray that you'll help us remember those things which are very important from your word, uh, which will, as you've promised, uh, fully equip us uh, to be mature believers, to be salt and light in our world. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. Now, we saw uh, that this Corinthian church was founded in a city set in a culture of vice. We saw that last time. They were a vile, uh, evil people. They had too much money, too much luxury, too much indulgence. Uh, I'd like you to look, just hold your finger here and turn forward to 1 Corinthians 6, and you get a little idea of the culture around them and what they used to do. 
1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 is where we'll pick up, and we'll be in 1 Corinthians 6 a few times today, as you'll see why shortly. As I just want to lay a foundation, sometimes you have to skip up in the book to kind of see where you're headed and why you're headed that way, and this certainly uh, connects very well to the Corinthian culture. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not be deceived, Paul says, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, verse 10, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Stop right there. And we saw last time, as we kind of concluded our time together, that was their life before. Uh, that was their town. Uh, those words could be combined, uh, if you would, to give a composite definition of the verb to Corinthianize, which we saw last time. Uh, the name of the town became a verb uh, in the Greek uh, language that would indicate vice. And so to Corinthianize would just be somebody uh, who just had a lot of vice, particularly sexual vice. And so that composite, I think, of 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 could give you an idea really of the culture that this uh, church is set in. And so that is the city to which the letter is written. These believers came out of a culture with a lot of uh, baggage. Uh, they came out uh, new in Christ. They brought a lot with them, the larger Roman culture around them kept the heat on. Now, as we connect that to uh, our culture today, I think it's obvious to us that we live, we live certainly in a sex-mad culture. Uh, we live in a culture that's indulging itself in every conceivable and unconceivable sexual activity. Uh, I'm raising and have raised four boys, and of course that's uh, a desire of my wife and I to, to uh, filter all of that, to make sure they're aware of some life skills that can help them with a culture that is increasingly uh, more sexually oriented all along. We lived in Miami for quite some time, and uh, we understand all of that. In fact, I think it, it, wouldn't, uh, it, it would probably tax your imagination and mind to uh, conceive of a more sexually perverted or immoral society than the one in which we live in now. Not only is it uh, sexual sin tolerated in any form by about anyone, with anyone, anytime, any place, any way. But more than just being tolerated, it is advocated, it's promoted, it's marketed through every possible means. Everything is sold that way, just about. It's not um, uncommon today to find people who call themselves Christians who are also engaging in every imaginable and unimaginable sexual vice. My experience is that about Half of the Christian couples that come to me for Christian counseling have already uh, engaged in sexual intimacy. That is in the church, that's in our church. Uh, it's apparent that we're living in a sexual rebellion, and if, if you will, I don't think any of us needs to be informed on that any more than we already are. Uh, we're bombarded with it constantly. We live in a culture where there appears to be a rebellion against any standard, any kind of uh, rules about that kind of behavior, and that has salted the church to some extent. Uh, to put that into illustrative form, uh, we want to allow sexual freedom at any cost. I think uh, the thing that I think for a long time it's been this way, uh, sexual expression so demanded that for a long time it's been the God that in some ways rules over all the other gods of our culture. And the reason why I say that is, I'll just give you two illustrations, I think you can see why I come down there that um, we want to allow sexual freedom at any cost, even if it means we will kill the product 
of that sexual freedom. In other words, we'll murder, uh, we'll murder the product or the victim of that freedom uh, just in order to continue to engage in that kind of freedom. And, and if you look at the homosexual community, uh, you know, they want their freedom if it means the whole population dies of AIDS. Uh, they want their freedom even if it means every dollar of research has to go to AIDS research so we preserve that fraction of the, of the society that decides that's how they're going to act. And so I think we've come to the point where we're so totally consumed with sexual behavior that we'll literally live with an unspeakable, unthinkable consequence and it just becomes part of us and we don't even think about it anymore. And as bad as that is, there has been, though, a society worse than this one. There's same philosophy I think we could find in Corinth, the same in the Greek culture, the Roman culture. Uh, their culture included homosexuality, which included pedophilia and transvestism and all the subsequent behavior that goes along with all of that. Uh, it was true in the Roman world, certainly, uh, and unlike today, and here's where the difference is, I think the major difference, there wasn't a preliminary Christian culture to act as some kind of small barrier or filter uh, to kind of insulate uh, us from it. There wasn't that in the Roman culture. There was no preliminary Christian culture kind of as a border around uh, the culture, particularly in America. And to help you get a feeling for the kind of culture to which Paul writes here, we can just look at the Greek language and some of the ways that it's able to catalog the kinds of deviant sexual sins and the varying words that make that very clear. For example, I'm just going to do a quick survey. I don't think it's important uh, to kind of uh, exacerbate our, our imagination. I'm only going to deal with heterosexual sins at this point. But the first word that we see in the Greek language is porne. We saw it a moment ago in 1 Corinthians 6. Porne literally means the purchasable one. The purchasable one, it, it, it tended to uh, refer to all immoral behavior, but it really means the purchasable one, so that is the prostitute. Uh, they have, uh, had that word because in that society which Paul lived, into which he penned his letter, which he founded churches under the power of the Holy Spirit, there was prostitution, legal prostitution, rampant prostitution. second word to keep in mind in Greek language is uh, like the first one, pornuon, and that just takes in the business of prostitution. So they had the one side, all the immorality goes on with prostitution, and then the whole business that's connected with it. So both of those things then uh, rampant and legal. Uh, there's a Greek word paluka. It is a, a concubine. It's something that was also uh, legal and uh, rampant in the culture to which Paul wrote. Primary, primary function, of course, was to fulfill intimate desire. Literally, in the Roman culture, you could purchase a concubine, add her to your fold of concubines. She was there for that purpose. That was legal. Eromene, that's the word for mistress. And, of course, we have that today, but that was very common then. Uh, that's a woman you didn't buy. That's someone who's a friend, typically, uh, for uh, fulfillment intimately and all of that that goes along with it. Moikao, just, uh, that refers to the adulterer or the adulteress. And, of course, that just describes what goes on with the things we just got through saying. Uh, you certainly could purchase someone. You could have... Uh, for temporary purposes, you could have a concubine. For uh, continuing purposes, you could have a mistress or reversing the situation. Uh, uh, a woman could have a man for those kinds of things. And so, because for, for, for every uh, interaction, there's two people involved. And so, that was all going on, all that, filling up the Corinthian as well as the whole Roman culture. And, and I think you can see how it was worse, uh, but we could go be a step beyond that, and we could go to temple prostitution and uh, the Babylonian cultic mystery religions, really that filtered down all the way to the time of Paul, where these mythological religions of that time advocated prostitution. And uh, they did that because they taught if you had a relationship with a priestess, you were communing somehow with the deity that she represents. And uh, that's the way to get in touch with the, the deity, by a liaison with this temple uh, priestess. And so 
The temple in Corinth, for example, had a thousand temple prostitutes. We talked about that to get people in contact with the deity. That's a very popular religion, as you may well imagine, uh, for a culture. Uh, so a very convenient form of, of religion. And you can see that it was not only not illegal, it was actually condoned, encouraged to get the people connected with what was going on uh, with this cult. And so just by that small example, and it was a mess, and I don't really want to provoke our thoughts. My desire, of course, on Sunday mornings is to avoid uh, digging into all the mess that is our culture. You already know this to some extent or another, and the mess that was the Roman culture because it just provokes our thoughts, and I don't want to do that. But I do want you to see that Paul's writing to a culture that's worse. So when he says stop and when he says don't, and we, say, we understand that they were not in uh, some kind of Christian culture that had some insulation around it, but they were in a culture where it was everywhere and they came out of it and Paul says stop. And it's, of course, if he gives the command, it's certainly possible for it to happen. But uh, they had all of that and add to that homosexuality, pedophilia, all the other things that were deviant going on. That was the culture to which Paul lived, which he wrote. So if you think it was, it's bad today, which I'm sure you do, I think you would find that it would have found that it was worse then. The difference today would have been uh, the different forms of media. That's the big difference, I think, for us. Uh, I just say that then, then you wouldn't have been inadvertently exposed to it, constantly bombarded with it, uh, as we are now, involuntarily perhaps, to the degree that we are today. And today, to the point where we see it so much and we hear the word so much, we don't think anything's wrong with it. We haven't processed all that and seen how it's an offense to God, all the different deviant behavior. And we've been so desensitized to that sin, but so had they in Paul's day as well. Sexual sin then was common. Sexual sin was tolerated. Uh, sexual sin was customary, just as today, even more so. Uh, now, why is that important? Why is that important that we kind of lay that foundation? Uh, it's important because of this. As we laid down this foundation last week, as we look at Acts 18, Paul goes to Corinth, he meets two new friends. They are Priscilla and Aquila, right. And so he goes there, and he went to Corinth to preach the gospel to found a church. And, uh, and founding that church, they were rescuing people out of this pornographic culture. Okay, so uh, obviously these people had lived a pagan lifestyle. They had a former religion in which they engaged in all of these things. They had all of these things. Now all of a sudden they come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then there's this little island of salvation in this sea of paganism. Okay. And so Paul's concerned about them because he knows that old habits act as a very strong temptation in a new life. And the older you are when you come to faith, of course, the more you bring with you as far as baggage goes. You don't forget those habits easily, if at all. And the Apostle Paul knew that the relatively new group of Christians, only 18 months old or so, because that's how long Paul spent there, it's only been a few months since they were saved, perhaps. He knows the pull of those old habits. He knows the push of that wicked culture. That's going to make this a major problem. And just as a side note, uh, why perhaps do you think that Paul, when he's writing Timothy, and he writes about the standards of leadership in the church, he states that being above reproach, being a one-woman man is most important. Why? Because he's, that's the dominating culture Milu, right? That's, that's the thing that was the most, the most important thing, sexual deviation, just like today. Just like today. So Paul says, look, this has to be true of those who, go, who lead the church. And so he takes on those things almost right away, a one-woman man and all of that stuff, because Paul says, listen, you can't be uh, like the world. And by the way, remember that there wasn't any shame attached to those things before salvation. That was their culture. That's where they lived. Okay? This had been their lifestyle. The Corinthian culture was famous for immoral vice. And we're going to see that Paul says, and, you know, in spite of cultural habits, uh, in spite of uh, your old patterns, the Lord doesn't tolerate sexual sin. Go ahead and forward that, guys, please. This is not working for some reason. 
Lord doesn't tolerate sexual sin. The church can't live like that, like the world. The world can't. The church can't live uh, and do what the world does. It doesn't matter how the world lives. And it's not just physical function. He's going to tell in 1 Corinthians 6. Again, look back there if you would. It's very important. And as you read the words and you think about then this underlying uh, culture that Paul's directing to, I think these words become all the more apparent what he's trying to say. Look at 1 Corinthians 6.12. And of course, when we get here, we'll really break this down and, and you'll be, uh, be clear about what Paul's talking about. But I just want to illustrate what we've been saying. Paul says this. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me but I'll not be mastered by anything. And we looked at that uh, pretty much at, at length when we were in Romans. We'll come back to it, though. Verse 13, food is for the stomach. Here it is. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach's for food, but God will do away with both of them. And that was the issue, see? Food's for the stomach, stomach's for food. What's the big deal? Sex is for the body, body is for sex. What's the big deal? It's a physical function. Why are we making a big deal about it? All right, it's just physical. And then Paul says, no, it's not. And then he keep, goes on and says, verse 13, look there. God's going to do away with both of them, yet, he says, the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. So he's preempting that, isn't he? Food for the stomach, stomach for food, sex for the body, body for sex. He just preempts that and just says, listen, no, uh, the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord's for the body. Now look at verse 14. Now God not, has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall then I take away the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? May it never be. Now, you can see this as it fits perfectly in this Corinthian culture, okay, and in the larger Roman culture around it. Verse 16, or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. Verse 17, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Verse 18, flee immorality, Paul says. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. It's not just a physical function. There's a spiritual dynamic going on here. Verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Verse 20, For you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Right? Very important comments Paul makes. It's not just a physical function. This is important a spiritual aspect. Just because the world sinks deeper and deeper and deeper into the muck doesn't mean that we sink along with it. Just because they lower their standard lower and lower and lower and lower doesn't mean we lower ours one little bit. See, this is not relative morality. This is an absolute standard. It doesn't change. It doesn't fluctuate. All forms of sexual gratification may be indulged in by society, but not by the church. See, not by the church. Paul says, listen, this is not what we do. So Paul's having to deal with trouble among the saints at Corinth. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11 Go to that next slide, guys. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I am of Christ. Now, we saw last time, Apollos, go to that next slide. Apollos was the second, pa the second pastor of the church. And that is, uh, this church, a wonderful work done by Paul, as we saw last time, uh, founding the church, establishing it. And then another man comes, and God blesses his work. Remember, Paul goes to the he goes to the tavern, uh, to the synagogue first, and he gets tossed out. He says, "Great, I'm going to go to the Gentiles." He goes down one house, moves in, and uh, then for 18 months he spreads the gospel, and the gospel uh, grows, the church grows. And so uh, another man comes along. God blesses this work. But you know, there's something there that was a problem in Corinth, and the major problem was this. And you can see it up there. They didn't detach themselves from the morality of their world. Does that sound common to you? Because that's where we are, I think, now in some respects. 
they were not walking in sanctification long enough to get, if you will, de-Corinthianized. Okay, because they came in with all this baggage and they're not walking in sanctification. They hadn't grasped the principle of 1 John 2.15. Look there if you would. Switch, uh, you don't have to look there. I'll put it on the screen, but switch that slide. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. They hadn't grasped that principle, had they? Uh, doing away with the principles of the world in their life. They were holy positionally, we're going to get to that in just a minute, according to Paul, but they weren't cleaning up practically. They were sucked into this vortex of their own world, and it, they were into that Corinthian kind of living, they just couldn't seem to get out of it. So Paul, sometime after he left, he writes them a letter. We don't know what he said in that letter because in detail, as I told you briefly last time, because uh, that letter's lost. And people say, well, how do you know the letter's lost? Well, the way you know that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, uh, you read this. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. So the idea here is he's writing 1 Corinthians saying, I wrote to you in a letter. So we obviously know that a letter came that we don't have. He'd written to them in a previous letter, and what did he say? He said, don't keep company with fornicators. Don't hang around with sexually sinful people. Uh, you, you see what the problem was in Corinth, basically? It's the same thing over and over. We see it from different angles. It's the inability or the unwillingness or a combination of both of those things for the Corinthian believer to detach themselves from the morality of the system in which they lived, in which they previously engaged. And the people, you know, that's exactly what we face in our world today, I think. The morality of Christian church has gone down really at the rate measured by the rate of decline in the culture. Uh, now, I don't think we're going down at the same pace. I think we're going down in some relative way, though. Uh, there are things that Christians allow themselves today that they would never dream of allowing years ago. And in a relative way, they're still about the same distance from the world. But the manifestations of the world's evil have gone so far uh, that uh, if church finds itself going in the same way. And, and that was the Corinthian problem, that it was relative morality. They needed to know when and how to cut off from the world. Well, he writes them and he tells them, he says, don't keep company with sexually sinful people. But when they read that previous letter, they misunderstood Paul and uh, misunderstood what he meant. That's why Paul clarifies uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 5.10, he said, and go to that slide if you would, he says, uh, I did not at all mean with immoral people of the world, Paul says. I wrote you this letter, I said, don't associate with immoral people, but I wasn't talking about people of the world or with the covetous, swindlers, idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. Paul says, I wrote to you not to associate with them, but I wasn't talking about the world in which you live. I mean, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to die and go on to heaven if you're going to stop associating with them, right? And a believer is not doing his job as an evangelist if you're not associating with non-believers. Paul says, to not associate with non-believers would require them to go out of the world. But actually, verse 11, he says, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. <coughs> so Paul gives him some pretty clear points. He says, look, I want to clear this up. Don't associate with, with a brother in Christ who participates in those things. So what's the church's obligation to a continually sinning brother in Christ? You don't have anything to do with him, you see? You put them out. Why? Because then he has to count the cost of his sin. 
You see, then you purify the church. Paul says, you know, get that thing out of here. You misunderstood. I didn't mean stay away from the ungodly. I mean, stay away from those who are God's children who are living in sin. And in verse 12, he says this, For what have, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Verse 13, But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Make them pay the price of loneliness. Make them pay the price of disfellowship. Make sure your ranks are pure. Keep the sin out of the world out. Anybody who does them, put them out. Purify. That's what he's saying in this letter. See, Their problem was they were not disconnecting from the world. They weren't even disconnecting from believers who were in the world. They were just continuing the fellowship that they'd always had. And Paul says, look, that's a problem. Don't do it. So he wrote them this first letter, and then he writes them 1 Corinthians, which comes later. And after that first lost letter, Paul got some bad reports. And that's obvious from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That's the indication we just read. And he got more word in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 11, which we read just a minute ago, he said he heard some other things as well about the Corinthian church that were bothering him. Uh, he said in 1 Corinthians 1, 11, he says, I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, this is after that first letter, by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. So in other words, you're fighting in the church. And he heard that from Chloe. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, just quickly, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you, he says, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. So Paul says, you know, you guys are doing things even the pagans don't talk about. I haven't even heard of this in them. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, someone wrote a letter to him asking about intimacy and marriage and, and divorce. So they have a number of problems, see? They have divisions, they have arguments, they have uh, sex, they have some who are arrogant, there's some criticized Paul constantly, wouldn't listen to him. Uh, and, and we go through this rest of the book and we see they had problems with a lot of things. They just had no seeming commitment to disconnect from the system, see? So Paul starts getting these reports. And he was so upset then, you know what he did? He sends Timothy to them. 1 Corinthians 4, 17, Paul says this. For this reason I've sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He'll remind you of my ways which are in Christ. And I'm not telling you something I don't tell everybody else, he says, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Then in chapter 16, verse 10, he says this. Now, if Timothy comes, then see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he's doing the Lord's work as I also am. So he's so upset, he sends Timothy to them. In addition to that, it seems likely, while he was at Ephesus for three years after he left Corinth, that he made a hurried visit back to Corinth, he was so upset. But finally, he writes 1 Corinthians, but not until he's founded the church, written them a first letter, dispatched Timothy to them, okay, so you get the timeline, and even made a quick visit himself. And finally, he writes 1 Corinthians. We'll talk about this in the future, but it's also likely he wrote another letter, as I indicated last week, calling the sorrowful letter. 2 Corinthians 2.4 seems to indicate that there was a sorrowful letter as well. But what we have preserved for us from the Lord are these two epistles and these masterpieces of God's plan for a healthy church. And it's intended really to set the church right morally and to set the church right doctrinally, which is the reason why Paul penned them. Now, you've got the timeline. You understand a little bit about the background. Now, knowing the background for yourself... It's amazing then, now look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. You know this now, you know the background, you know everything that happened in between. Paul going there, staying 18 months, leaving, he's three years away in Ephesus. He sends him a first letter, which doesn't get received well, and he gets a lot of bad reports. And he sends Timothy to them, and makes a quick trip himself there, and then he writes 1 Corinthians. And here's what he says, okay, now listen, this is very significant, I think, very important, okay. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, 
with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. He says, you're sanctified in Christ Jesus. You're saints along with everybody else who calls on his name. This is what he writes now after all the things that he's been through, everything that he's had to deal with, all, the little trip and the first letter and sin and Timothy and all the stuff that's going on, all the worry, he writes that. And he drives home this concept. He says, you're holy. And really that becomes the foundation for all of his exhortation. And then he says this, look back at verse 2. Who have been sanctified, from the Greek verb hagiadzo, saints by calling, same root word, adjective, hagion. And the idea is that you've been made holy, therefore you're called holy ones. That's the point. This is a positional truth, beloved, based on past completed act of Christ. They're saints, they're holy, and it would have been easy to question how they could be holy with all this mess in their lives, right? But remember this, as you have mess in your life, and I do too. Positional holiness isn't a matter of works, is it? Can a man make himself holy? No. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10 really illustrates that so wonderfully. I love this passage. By this we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Verse 12. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 13. Waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Isn't that a great verse? Sometimes you get to the end of your day and you're the only one who knows you're a believer and the Lord knows and that's it after you've messed up a bunch of times, after you seem like you've sinned the same sin over and over again. By Christ's death, he made men holy. Men can be holy because he paid the price for sin. That's the issue. That's the point. He, sanctif he sanctifies men. That is, he cleanses them. He makes them holy. He sets them apart to himself by his offering, by his suffering, by his death, by his resurrection. And Christ does that through the vehicle of belief. Acts 20, verse 20, Paul says... How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, verse 21, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of, what is it, church? Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul taught that to everyone, see? And so this vehicle of belief, Jesus paid the perfect sacrifice. He rose from the dead. They believed they were made holy, see? If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've accepted his death, his resurrection. On your behalf, you're a saint, you're holy. Paul lays that all down for them. He says, say people, the very definition, by very definition of who you are, you're holy. You are called holy, and his point is, what are you doing acting unholy? That's the point. It comes on so strong when you understand the background of the book, just that simple statement of verse 2, you saints who have been made holy, that alone should have been an indictment, couldn't it have? And certainly when you read that, right, and I read that in my quiet time, and I have spent some time not doing, you know, acting in spirit-controlled manner or whatever. You saints who've been made holy, isn't that convicting to you? And you read that and realize, man, that's my position. That alone is a piercing sword that could have cut their hearts. It cuts ours. And so here he says, you know, you're saints along with everybody else that calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So a saint then is somebody who calls on the name of Christ, a Christian, anyone who's saved, who knows the Lord Jesus Christ is a saint. And we said just a moment ago, he starts out by saying, you're sanctified. It's the same root word as a saint. Go to the next slide, if you would. You're called saints in order to make them aware of the fact that the foundation for his exhortation to their behavior is the fact that they're saints, you see? In other words, you've been made holy, you're called holy, therefore I'm writing you this letter for the purpose to tell you to act holy. 
I have that as my foundation, Paul says. That's really the purpose of his first nine verses where he talks about being a saint. That is the basis, beloved, or the foundation for all behavior in Christian life is our own identity, okay? That is the foundation for all behavior in Christian life. It's your identity called saints, sanctified, positionally holy. The fact of who we are is the premise upon which the Word of God bases the fact of what we ought to act like. Always through the Word, that's what you're going to find. Who you are is the basis for what you should act like. You might put it this way. The indicative, you are, is the basis for the imperative, you ought. Okay? The indicative, you are, is the basis for the imperative, you ought. And that occurs all through the New Testament. In fact, it tells us we're holy because of what Christ is. Therefore, we ought to be like Him. We ought to act like Him. See, our lives ought to conform to Him. I think of an illustration. You remember John 8. In particular, I was reading that this week. The woman taken in adultery, Jesus says to her these words, Go and sin no more. And I think that's significant, okay? That's an interesting thing to look at because he was commanding a woman, if you remember the context, who was a prostitute who lived a vile life, who'd been caught in the very act of adultery, to go and stop doing it. That's what he was commanding her to do. Now, now to ask her to do that would have been to assume that there'd been, what? Some kind of change in the process of her thinking or in whatever dominated her behavior, right? What had happened, of course, to the woman was that she'd been saved and she had been granted new life. And Jesus said, before he said, go and sin no more, he says, neither do I condemn you, right? Neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more, you see? In other words, from now on, I hold no sin against you. You're holy in my eyes, therefore, act like it. And see, that's a perfect illustration for us to understand. There's no way you could have commanded a prostitute who made her living in prostitution who had no life change, go and sin no more, you know. No, she would have done like every other person in the world does when they get caught doing something they shouldn't be doing, like most of our people in Hollywood and, and lots of our politicians. They come and make some kind of contrite, I'm sorry, because they got caught. I'm sorry I got caught. That's the part that you don't hear. I'm sorry that I got caught doing this in front of you and I'm very embarrassed, right? That's not it. It was a change in life. Otherwise, they never would have changed the behavior, right? And so he says, go and sin no more because she can't. You're holy, therefore act like it. So that point's made all through the New Testament. As a Christian, you're not condemned. You're holy. Your sin's forgiven. Your sin is set aside. Therefore, you ought to act in consistency with who you are. See? Now, as we close, look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. This is a great example of back and forth. Paul makes this uh, it gives the, the understanding of all these things, the indicative and then the imperative, back and forth. So I think it's a perfect place to look. <coughs> Colossians 3.1. I'm be reading from the New American Standard. And uh, you can find that in the chair in front of you, or you can, I'll give you verse cues. This is my habit. You can stay with us. Here he goes. Verse 1 starts with therefore. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ. Now, stop right there. There's the premise, and he's going to say it in another way in just a minute. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, here's the rest of it, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your mind on the things above, not on things that are on the earth. Here it is again, here's the premise. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, beloved, your orientation to the world Whatever immoral desire your physical body may have, whatever immoral mental desires may be in play, they are to be considered dead. 
okay? And that's a very important principle, okay? As a, as, apart from humanistic psychology, see, which doesn't work, this actually works, okay? It's not the power of positive thinking, it's the power of truth in your life. This is who you are, okay? This is where your life is now. You're not condemned. You've been delivered. Therefore, since you've been raised up with Christ, Therefore, since you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Now look at verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Here's the imperative based on the indicative. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Why? Why? Because you're dead and your life is hidden with Christ. Why? Because you've been raised up with Christ, those are the impetus, if you will. And remember, verse 6, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Verse 8, but now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Verse 9, do not lie to one another. Why, beloved? Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. See, there it is again. Verse 10, and have put on the new self who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So, don't lie because it's inconsistent with who you are. You've put off the old man and you've put on the new man and the new man wasn't made for lying. Okay? You see? That's a pretty important principle continually back and forth. The new man wasn't made for lying. You weren't cut out for that now. Okay? That's what you used to be in the old person, but the old person's dead, and now you're new, see? Verse 11, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man, but Christ is all and in all. In other words, it doesn't matter what your background was, it doesn't matter what you used to do, it doesn't matter what you were connected to before, okay? It doesn't matter how passionate you are or what your parents did or whatever, or what attachment theory you hang on to or whatever garbage that come, what comes down the pipe, okay? That makes no difference. You're new, okay? New in Christ. This is your identity now, and this is what you do, okay? So don't do those things because it's inconsistent with who you are now. Don't blame it on something your mother did when you were seven, okay? You understand? There's no distinction between whatever your background was, okay? Here it is again, the premise in the indicative, verse, verse 12. So as those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved. There it is, just stated a different way, okay? You've been raised up with Christ. You, you've uh, died and your life is hidden with God. You laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Verse 12, those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Verse 13, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. And again, you know, two different ways. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you, see, beyond all these things, verse 14, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Here it is again, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. The new man is conformed to the image of Christ. You're holy in Christ before God. So act like Christ. That's the issue, right? That's what Paul calls them to. And you can govern your life that way. Since I'm in Christ, I'd never do anything that he wouldn't do, see? 
So as you look at those things that you do constantly, maybe uh, habits that you have, the way your nature tends to interact with other people, whatever it is, see, uh, it can all be filtered through that filter. And that's an important engagement for you. Your volitional will engaged here, okay? Don't say, oh, God, just kind of help me not to gossip anymore. Well, sure, it's his desire that you don't gossip anymore, but are you the one picking up the phone? See, are you the one off in the side, whatever? You know, God, help me not to lust anymore. You know, just take it, Lord. It's just all yours. Just take it away. You know, I've heard that. I've read that in books. Just take it. It's all yours. Yeah. Paul says, listen, you're new in Christ, and your position should dictate what you do. And if you recognize that who you are is this new person, then that's how, why you should act in a certain way. That's why Paul can give the imperative, because you're who you are, see. Your saints, your holy, so having identified them, he gives them a greeting. Just a common Christian greeting. Look at the next slide, if you would, guys. I'm not going to commit adultery because that's totally foreign to the life of Christ. I'm not going to lie because that's foreign. That's not who I am. I wasn't made new for that. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to uh, um, steal because he hasn't made me for that. That's part of the old life. You know, that's the reason why people are going to be punished. A consistent habit of stealing, consistent habit of lying, of immorality, all that kind of stuff, which indicates a life that's not been transformed is the reason why wrath is coming on the earth, see? I'm not going to be that way. I'm not going to act like the rebellion because I'm not part of the rebellion anymore, see? So you're saints, you're holy. So he identifies them there. Now, you know all that background. It just seems so remarkable. It's very encouraging, isn't it? At least it was as I continue to search it out myself. It's very encouraging to me to understand who I am and, and the tendencies of the old life that tend to call to me across the fence and say, hey, do this, you know? But I don't have to follow that master anymore because I'm not, I'm not under that dominion. But you're saints, you're positionally holy, so what Christ would do, you do, and what Christ wouldn't do, don't do. Take a look at your life. And he says this, verse 3 says, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's just a greeting. It's part of our introduction, of course. I love that greeting. Grace is favor and peace is fruits. Grace is the Greek greeting. Peace is the Hebrew greeting. He says, your saints, therefore, have grace and God's peace. And, you know, it occurred to me uh, this week, you can't say that to an unsaved person, can you? Because they can't have either of those things. That's just a joke. Grace and peace to an unsaved person. You can't have neither of those things are available, okay? Those are Christians behaving like this, holy people. And, of course, he's going to discuss all of their holiness and all that that means in verses 4 to 9, which we'll get to next week, and all the benefits of being a saint. And then, like we saw in our illustration in Colossians, starting in verse 10, he's going to begin to discuss how it ought to change their behavior. And he's going to get into very difficult issues that are in the church, still in the churches today. And, uh, and so we're going to have a very enriching time because we know the culture in the background. And we understand that our culture in the background, as wicked as it is, is not as wicked as the one he was writing to. So we certainly can... Uh, detach ourselves from the draw and the vortex of all that's around us. Let's bow and we'll be dismissed in prayer together and then a few announcements and we'll, we'll depart. <coughs> Father, we know uh, that uh, you are holy and your, your name is holy. Your attribute that girds about all the other attributes of yours is your holiness. Uh, your love and all your justice and all that uh, all governed by your holiness. We're grateful that you're holy. We're grateful that you have called us holy through Jesus Christ, those who have come to a right relationship with you through the Son. We know that you've made us holy, not because of who we are in ourselves. Our holiness is because of what Jesus did, not because of what we can do. Our holiness is simply 
believing in what has occurred and receiving that gift. And we thank you, Father, that um, even though we fail, even though we sin, even though, like the Corinthians, we somehow just can't seem to detach ourselves from the system, uh, we are still holy and we're still saints and we're still blessed with all those blessings. But Lord, I pray that you'll teach us as we work our way through here how it is to be repaying you with obedience. Teach us how it is to live in conformity with who we are. That's the key. Living in conformity with who we are. May we bring our lives into harmony with what you've made us. That's really our prayer today. Maybe we can echo that together in the congregation. The quietness of your own heart. We really want to be living in harmony with what you've made us. In conformity with who we are. In repaying you with obedience. That's really what we want. And Father, we know that there are probably some folks with us today and who will listen later who are not holy, who are not saints, who have never yet believed and received the perfect gift of salvation provided on the cross. And Lord, may today be the day they do that. The perfect gift of salvation provided through Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection. Scripture tells you to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Believing that he's Lord is simply acknowledging who he is, that he's come and done all that he said he was going to come and do. He's accomplished salvation for you, that your sin has separated you from God, and that you're condemned and on your way to an eternal hell apart from salvation through Jesus. Acknowledging him as Lord means that everything he says is true for you too, not just an academic truth, but a real truth that applies to you. And believing that Jesus I was raised from the dead, simply confirms that his sacrifice on behalf of your sin, his suffering on your, by, uh, for your sin was sufficient and that God raised him from the dead and declared him Lord. That's the desire of your heart. You recognize you're not holy. You recognize you're separate from the Lord. You recognize that the pattern of your life really is those things that we looked at in, in uh, the early verses in Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 6, that the pattern of your life is not holiness pattern of your life is those other things, then you need a Savior. Cry out to him today. Father, our hearts rejoice for those who have received new birth today. We want to commit them to you. We want to commit ourselves to you as well. We're grateful that you do the work of salvation and continue to do the work of sanctification in the hearts of those you've redeemed. You who have begun a good work will be faithful to complete it. So Lord, we rest there no matter where we perhaps have been this week, whatever may have been indicative in our lives. If we cried out to you for salvation, you have heard and you've delivered us and we can rest there and now repay you with obedience and become conformed to the image of who we already are in your sight. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.